I uh, was looking this week as we were thinking about the passage of Scripture that we're looking at in God's Word and, and looking at a survey that was done last year. George Barna has teamed up with Arizona Christian University, and they've done some extensive polling across the United States on spiritual views and religious views and views of the Bible. And so April of 2020, they came up with this survey that said four out of every 10 people in the United States believe the Bible is the Word of God. 41%. But of that 41%, only one out of seven of the 41% holds to a biblical worldview. Now, when we think about a biblical worldview, we're, we're thinking about that we're using the Bible as that lens in which we see and understand why things are the way that they are. The Bible is what sets our beliefs and our, our, our actions, our behaviors as we navigate the world in which we live. So people are out there saying, yes, we believe the Bible, but only one out of seven who say they believe the Bible are actually saying the Bible is what sets the standard for my beliefs and behaviors and my perspective in understanding the world that is around me. That comes to uh, like 6% of those in our society today. It is very, very small. And yet sometimes those who have grown up in the church have learned some stories about God and they have some, some, uh, some different thoughts on, on how things work and they can tell some of the children's stories by, by memory, but they have not really seen the power of God's word working in their life. And they have not come to understand that the focus of the Bible is on God reconciling himself to man so that man can walk in a relationship with him on the earth and then experience the fullness of that relationship in heaven. But as Paul went into Thessalonica, he preached and taught God's Word. So take your Bibles this morning and turn again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And today we're going to pick up in verse number 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so that as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And with that, let's pray. Father, as as we open your word today, speak to us. And we pray today that we would see Jesus. In your name, amen. 
When Paul strolled into the city of Thessalonica, he came into a city that was filled with diverse religious views. There were those that were worshiping the emperor and worshiping the gods of the world, filled with idolatry and the immorality that went with it. Paul came in and he began to preach the message of Jesus. He preached to those who had a Jewish legalistic background. Those who said, look, you have to follow the law in order to please God and in order to go to heaven. So as Paul comes in, remember what he preaches in Acts chapter 17, he preached that Christ had to suffer and to rise again and that Jesus is the Christ. Those were the three real main points of Paul's message as he came into Thessalonica to carry the the word of Jesus. He goes into the Old Testament scripture as he steps into the, the, the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he preaches Christ had to suffer, he rose from the dead, And he is the Messiah. There were those that received the message. There were some Jewish believers after that moment when their eyes were open to the truth of Jesus. There were other Greeks or Gentiles that were persuaded as they heard the message of Jesus. And it tells us that there were some influential women who heard the message of Jesus and they believed. But notice as they came in, Paul gives thanks in verse number 13, and he thanks God without ceasing that when they received the word in which Paul was preaching, they received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Now, as we look at Paul in this time, that Paul would be the prolific writer of Scripture as he would write back to these churches and that God would take the very words of Paul and they would become part of the inspired Scripture that we look to today for guidance. And Paul says, I thank God. He doesn't thank them. Notice, I don't, man, I thank you for receiving my word. No, no, no. It's I thank God. That you receive my word, not as the word of men, but as it is the word of God. And as Paul penned letters back to Thessalonica and to Rome and to Corinth and to Galatia and to Ephesus and to Philippi and to Colossae, as Paul penned those letters, those letters would be part of what we hold on to and we declare is the word of God. So this morning, I want us to focus on that thought of our Bible today and think about the Word of God. First off, we notice this truth. The Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is inspired by God. Paul says, you didn't receive this as the Word of men, but as it is the Word of God. Now, there's two uh, theological words that we need to understand at this point. First word is the word revelation. The word revelation is God revealing himself to man. It's God disclosing himself to man. And that happens in two primary ways. The first is through what is called general revelation. General revelation is something that gives a testimony to the whole wide world. General revelation, think of it in terms of creation. So that Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. 
The heavens are declaring. And, and the, the firmament is, the firmament is, is, is giving reference to his handiwork. And he goes on to say, day after day, they are uttering speech. The sun, the moon, the stars, the beautiful earth around us, they're giving testimony. There is a God. There is a God. Day after day, they utter speech, and night after night, they bring forth knowledge. And the Bible says in Psalm 19, there is no speech and no language in the whole wide world that can't come to a revelation of understanding that there is a God because of creation. Paul uses this in Romans chapter 1, beginning around verse number 20 as well. He says that through creation, we have a testimony of the divine attributes of God, and So God holds all men without excuse. God gives a general revelation through creation. But there is also special revelation. And special revelation is God's word. And that is where we come to the word inspiration. The inspiration of of scripture. When we say that the Bible is inspired by God, what are we saying? What we're saying is Paul, as he writes to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it is God-breathed, so that when these writers took uh, their, their pen and they were speaking with the Lord, that the very things that they wrote down, coming from different backgrounds, different uh, education levels, different countries, they spoke in different languages, three different languages at least, we come and we recognize that these 66 books of our Bible, written over about a 1,500-year period, come to the place where we say, this is the word of the Lord. Scripture was given by inspiration of God. So how did God do that? Well, Second Peter chapter 1 tells us, He says that the men of God did did not speak on their own, but as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 21. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved. They were carried along. It's like they were in the boat and the Lord was leading and guiding and carrying them along so that a farmer... Like Amos would speak like a farmer, but when God would carry him along, he would use his education, his intellect, his, his uh, vernacular, but God would oversee the process in such a way that the words that were penned in the original autographs were exactly the words that God wanted them to say. That's the picture of Scripture. The Bible is inspired. And what we have seen through history and through thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, we have seen the veracity and accuracy of Scripture held up. That we can say with confidence, we know, we know what the Bible really says. Don't let people say, oh, that was so long ago. We have thousands of manuscripts. And as they take and compare them, we know what the Bible says. And we know that God's word is inspired by God. But secondly, and this is kind of, you know, I only gave you about that much room, or Julie only gave you about that much room in the bulletin, but 
point two is a bait and switch because you think it's going to be short, but it's going to be very long, okay? Second thought is this. The Bible focuses on Jesus. The Bible focuses on Jesus. The Bible is inspired by God. God breathed. Holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible focuses on Jesus. When Paul came into Thessalonica in Acts 17, he spoke the message of Jesus, that Christ had to suffer. He had to rise from the dead and that he truly is the Messiah. And remember what the people said? Those that were persecuting said, man, this guy's turning the world upside down because he's saying there's another king besides Caesar. So they were showing that Jesus is the king. Now, sometimes we don't realize this. And sometimes those who do not hold to a uh, the inspiration of Scripture want to tell us things like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Can I tell you, as we look at the Bible and as we look at what Scripture says, the Bible focuses on Jesus. And in every book of the Bible, we can find verses, we can find symbols, we can find parallels, we can find foreshadowings of the person of Jesus. I love the first five words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Did you know in John 1, 1, it tells us in the beginning was the word. Who's he talking about? That's Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it goes on to say that all things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that was made. We just went through the book of Colossians earlier this year. Colossians 1.16. Jesus was there, the agent of creation. For by him, all things were created. So you can't get through the first five verses of the Bible without understanding we see Jesus there. If you see your Bible and you understand your Bible. But let's think. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We find that Adam and Eve sin. And as they sin and fall into sin, what happens? The Lord God speaks to the serpent and says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, the seed of the woman, the picture of the Lord Jesus, is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we find that Abraham is given this awesome and wonderful promise that all the world through him is going to be blessed. Who's going to come from Abraham's lineage that's going to bless the world? It is the person of Jesus. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse number 10, we find that the royal scepter shall never leave the tribe of Judah. And who is it that has come from the the tribe of Judah? It is the Lord Jesus. In the book of Exodus, we get this picture of the the great Exodus. They're leaving Egypt and the Passover takes place. Remember, they put the blood up on the door. They put it on the sides of the door, a foreshadowing of the cross right there. But it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse number 7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Jesus is in the book of Exodus. In the book of Leviticus, we find that it's all about keeping the law, but people can't keep the law. So what do they need? They need a high priest who will go to God on their behalf and who will speak to God for them. And what happens? They have a high priest. And the high priest one time a year enters into the Holy of Holies and and offers this sacrifice. And can I tell you, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14, it tells us that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus is foreshadowed in the book of Leviticus, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. 
You remember what happened? The children of Israel were grumbling and complaining and the Lord sent serpents. Remember this story? The Lord sent serpents to bite them. And then he said, Moses, I want you to take a pole and I want you to put a serpent on it. And when people come and they look up to the serpent, then they can be saved. They can be healed from those terribly fiery serpent bites. And then in John 3, 14, Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You come to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, and God is called a rock. Did you know in the New Testament, Jesus, as he's speaking with Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven, you're Peter, you're a little rock, but on this rock, I will build my church. The rock, that profession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that profession, Jesus is the foundation stone and the rock of the church. In Joshua chapter 5, there's a picture of the uh, captain of the Lord's army who shows up. Joshua 5, 13 through 16. And guess what? That's a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. In the book of Judges, the people sinned and cried out for a deliverer. Who's our ultimate deliverer from sin? It is the person of Jesus. In the book of Ruth, there is a kinsman redeemer that rises up to rescue Ruth from her, her difficult life circumstance. And who is our redeemer of the New Testament? In the book of Samuel, there is a great prophet In Mark chapter 6, Jesus would say, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Jesus is a prophet. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, the Lord promises David that someone is always going to sit on his throne. That's a promise of Jesus sitting on the throne eternally. In the books of Kings and Chronicles, we see king after king after king after king after king. Some good, most bad. But we have a king who is greater than David and wiser than Solomon. And his name is Jesus. And he's not just the king. Revelation 19 says he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. In the book of Ezra, Ezra we see a faithful, a faithful man of God's word. And isn't it interesting that in Jesus' life, and the book of Luke records, that even as a child, Jesus could go into the temple because he was a man of the word and reason with those adults at 12 years old, Jesus could do that. He was a man of the word. In Nehemiah, there's, there's broken down walls and broken down lives. And who's the one who puts our life back together? Who is the one who takes broken things in our life and can put them back together? It's the Lord. In Esther, there's a picture of the providence of God as he saves his people. And who is the providential savior of the New Testament? It's none other than Jesus. In the book of Job, chapter 19 and verse number 25, Job cries out, I know that my redeemer lives. Who's our redeemer? We know that's the Lord Jesus. In Psalms, there's messianic Psalms. Not time to go through a whole lot there, but in Psalm 2, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you or give homage, pay respect. You better bow your knee to the son. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the son, God's son. 
Psalm 22, that, that phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Comes right from there. We think about the suffering of Jesus. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus in the New Testament says, I am the good shepherd. Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O ye gates, for look who's coming in. It's the king of glory. Who's the king of glory who's coming in? It's the Lord Jesus. Psalm 22, 23, 24, laid out right there. Pictures Jesus. In the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of God. Who, who shows us the wisdom of God? It, it's Jesus. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a question. What is the meaning of life? Can I tell you? John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. What's the answer to, to life's question? What's the meaning? The answer is, have a relationship with God through Jesus. I've come that you might have life. Song of Solomon, we see the picture of faithful love between a husband and a wife. And who's the one who said that you are to love your wife as Christ also loved the church? In Isaiah, oh man, I love the book of Isaiah. You can find Jesus on a lot of pages in the book of Isaiah. You can see him as the suffering servant, but, but you start all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 14, where it says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth the son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew picks up on that and says, this is Jesus. In Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, he's not only coming as Emmanuel, God with us, and the one who is our Wonderful Counselor, but he's coming as the sacrificial lamb. He was wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. Amen, buddy. Keep preaching. Keep preaching. All right. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, the Lord is called the Lord, our righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1, Jesus is called righteous. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, it said, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Lamentations, he cries out in Lamentations 3.23, great is thy faithfulness. And we find that Jesus is ever faithful as a high priest. He's ever faithful. In Ezekiel, the last verse in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48.35, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. And what did Jesus say? Lo, I am with you always. That nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13. What do we find? We find Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The book of Daniel, chapter 3. You remember he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the fiery furnace? And what does he look in in Nebuchadnezzar sees? Four. Who is that with him? I'm telling you, that's the Lord Jesus. That's who's in there with him. In Hosea, he is forever faithful as a husband. There's a picture of the love and the persistent love of the Lord Jesus. In Joel chapter 2, the giver of the Holy Spirit. Look in John chapter 15 and verse number 26. Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to proceed from 
the Father. In Amos, there's a picture of the plumb line, the one who's going to, to make sure, the, 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 the item that's going to make sure everything's straight and everything's perfect. And who sets that for us in the New Testament? It is the person of Jesus. In the book of Obadiah, he is the destroyer of the proud. And Jesus would look in Matthew chapter 11 to the city of Capernaum and say, oh, Capernaum, you think you're lifted up to the heavens. But you're going to face great judgment. You're going to be cast down into Hades. For if the miracles that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus one day is coming and the proud will not be able to stand in his presence. And Nahum, he is an avenger. And in Revelation 19, we see Jesus coming back. To, to, uh, and his robe is dipped in blood. And I believe that he is destroying those that have fought against him. The book of Micah, Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2, we see the prophecy of, of the birth in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 7, verse number 19, we see that he's going to cast our sins into the depths of the deepest sea. And notice in John 1, 29, Jesus says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away this. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Micah, then Nahum, then Habakkuk. He's called the anointed one in Habakkuk 3, 13. In the book of Zephaniah, I love the book of Zephaniah. People probably, one of my favorite verses in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah three seventeen says, the Lord God... In our midst, the mighty one will save. And then it says this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Beautiful verse. I think that's a beautiful picture of Jesus, the mighty one who saves. When around 2008, our family was able to go to Disney. And the older boys wanted to go ride a, uh, a roller coaster. And Josh was just really small at the time. And he was just tired. And so we went, and they had something uh, called the Country Bears there, a little show. And so we sat in the waiting area of the Country Bears, and he was just completely worn out. And so for probably 45 minutes to an hour, while there were people rustling and bustling, I put him in my arms, and I held his ear on that side, and I sang into his ear on this side. And I sang hymns and Christian songs. And I thought of Zephaniah 3.17, and I can't think of that verse without thinking of that moment where I'm singing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and have faith in God," and just pouring for 45 minutes to an hour while he's taking a nap. And I think of this picture, how the Lord quiets us with his love and rejoices over us with singing. In the book of Haggai, he is the desire of all nations in Haggai 2.7. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9, it gives the picture of the triumphal entry, how Jesus is going to come in on a, on, on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. 9. And then in Zechariah 12.10, that's his first coming. Zechariah 12.10 says he's going to come again, and they're going to look upon him whom they pierced. He's coming again. And then in the book of Malachi... Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 2 says he's the son of righteousness coming with healing in his wings. You know what the Old Testament does? It says there's a Messiah coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. So the whole Old Testament, 
through pictures and prophets says, Jesus is coming. One who is coming, a Messiah is coming. And then through the New Testament, the Gospels record the stories of Jesus. And then we get the, the, the rest of the New Testament after the book of Acts showing the history of Jesus. Then we get the lessons of the epistles that show us how to live now that Jesus has come. But the whole Bible focuses on the person of Jesus, so that in Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's a suffering servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the ascended Lord. In the book of Romans, he's the one who dies on the cross for our sins. And it says in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In 1 Corinthians, we know 1 Corinthians 15, he is the resurrected Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. If you know Jesus today, can I tell you you're rich? I don't care how much money's in your bank account. Don't care. Don't need to know. Don't care what kind of car you drive. Don't care where you live. I want to tell you today, if you know Jesus, you're rich. If you know Jesus, you're rich. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 15 Paul, after he's shared this section on giving, just says this, but thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. (laughs) I don't even know how to describe him. He's indescribable. He's inexpressible. How can I put who Jesus is into words? In the book of Galatians, he redeems us from the law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. In the book of Ephesians, he is the head of the church, Ephesians 1, 22. He's the one who who brings salvation to us. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then Ephesians 5, 2, he is our offering and and our sacrifice. That's who Jesus is. In the book of Philippians, you remember? Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue will confess. One day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The book of Colossians, we find he is creator, Colossians 1.16, sustainer, Colossians 1.17, reconciler, Colossians 1.19 through 23, and the fullness of God dwells in him bodily, Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 9. In the book of Thessalonians, he's our coming king. We see it in every chapter. In Timothy, 1 Timothy 1. And 2 Timothy, he's our savior. I love Paul gives his own personal testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And then in 2 Timothy, as he's writing to Timothy, he says, and that from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. It was the, the Lord Jesus who saved Paul and it was the Lord Jesus who saved Timothy. And then Titus 2.11, hey, we are looking for our blessed hope and our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Philemon, he's the payer of our debts. In Hebrews, he's our great high priest and not only our great high priest, but he's the great sacrifice. Amazing. In James, he's the healer of the sick. In Peter, he's the unblemished lamb. You're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold. 
but with a lamb as without, that is, that is spotless and unblemished. 1 Peter 5, 4 tells us that the chief shepherd one day is coming for us. In the book of John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1. My children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate, righteous, who gave himself as a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. In Jude, he's the only wise God. And then the book of Revelation. Ooh, man. In the book of Revelation, we see him. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day in that first chapter. And there he hears this huge voice like the seas. Says, I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. And Jesus says this in Revelation 1.18. I am alive and was dead. And I am alive forevermore. And behold, I hold the keys of Hades and death. Jesus holds the keys. Then in Revelation chapter 5, they ask the question. Who is worthy? Who's worthy to take the scroll? And they find one who's worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5, 5, the root of David. He's worthy to take the scrolls. And then all heaven erupts. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. And then in Revelation chapter 13, Jesus is called the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now you try to fit that in your theological framework. Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before creation, God had his plan in place. Then Revelation 19, I've shared it many times. He's coming in on a white horse. His name is faithful and true. His eyes are like flaming fire. On his head are many crowns. He is wearing a robe that has been dipped in blood. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. And written on his robe and on his thigh are the names King of kings and Lord of lords. Can I tell you? All of the Bible focuses on Jesus. It's, it's, it's not, it's not this nebulous thought that I believe a God's out there. That doesn't work. It's Jesus, 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 which brings us to our third thought. The Bible not only focuses on Jesus, but then when it comes down to it, the Bible clearly, clearly demands a response. And that response is, what am I going to do with the person of Jesus? And notice, there were some in verse number 13 who welcomed and received. And God's word was effectively working in them. The Bible demands a response. Receive God's word. And receiving God's word will bring transformation. That's what happened in their life. They received the word of God, verse number 13. They welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is the word of God. And it worked effectively in them. God's word and receiving God's word brings transformation in our life. Now, now, I I just have a hard time believing. I, I have a hard time believing that some of these people who call themselves a Christian, and we see the whole Bible focused on the person of Jesus, that they really know him. How could they live like that? How, 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 how can, 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 can Jesus be in their life when it's walked so contrary to everything that Jesus shows us? Receiving God's word brings transformation. But secondly, rejecting 
God's word will bring condemnation. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, brother, you were imitators of us, but there were those in Judea and they caused you to suffer. And they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and they persecuted us. And they even forbid us to speak against the, to, to the Gentiles the message of salvation. But notice what it says, that God is filling up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. There is coming a day, I know not when. There is coming a time. I don't know the day nor the hour, but there is coming a moment where every person who has rejected Jesus Christ as their personal savior will stand before him absolutely accountable and condemned because they not only have rejected him, but despite the evidence that God has given us, they have rejected him. And God says, I'm filling up the measure of their wrath. Those who have fought against the gospel will face a greater condemnation. C.S. Lewis, the great writer of the Chronicles of Narnia and great Christian thinker said this, Christianity is a statement which is, if false, is of no importance. And if it is true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So I ask you today, how important is Jesus? Christianity is all about Jesus. It's not about religion. It's not about denomination. Do you know Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? Do you know you've been saved by Jesus? And Jesus would say today, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Trying to do it on your own? trying to be good enough, do enough, be enough, come to Jesus. The Bible gives us one message. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus.